Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. So today we're talking about Chapter 10, Achieving World-Class Operations Management. Um, there's nothing mystifying about the title of the chapter. Um, before I do that real quick, let me make sure I got everybody. Is Tyler, got you. Um, Ms. Hood, got two Carsons. Quinson, Ryan, hello. Caleb, hello. Octavia, hello. Paige, got you. No Peyton. Renee, got you. No Ricky. And um, Miss Rebecca, got you. Okay. All right. So world-class operations management, there's a lot of different aspects to it. But um, what do we think or what comes to mind when I say operations management? What does that mean? There you go. Not, that's what I said. It's not, not mystifying. So operations are the day-to-day functioning of an organization. How does this thing work? And how do we keep it working? So an operations manager is somebody that oversees our day-to-day function, you know, and making sure that it's working like it's supposed to be working day in and day out. So that's what operations management is all about. That's really quick. So operation management, there's a couple different areas, but production, the creation of goods and services, inputs, resources to outputs. There's actually a middle step in there called throughputs. This is how you manipulate the inputs and create outputs. So if you're a bakery, you know, you take your raw materials, you've got, well, you receive raw materials, you create some type of concoction, and at the end you get a loaf of bread. The throughput is that manipulation of those resources. So it's the area of management concerned with managing managing that conversion process. So if I run a bakery, my things that I look at every day that are important to me are do I have the supplies I need, do I have the people that I need, are the, is the equipment functioning the way it's supposed to, if I've got those three bases covered, I'm feeling pretty good about my operation. But if one of those ingredients is missing, you know, if my equipment breaks down, or if my employees call out, or if there's a winter storm and my power goes out, do I have generators? What's my backup plan? So all these different pieces of the puzzle, you know, transportation logistics, what about trucks bringing me supplies? What about trucks picking up my baked product and taking it to stores? These are things that operations managers focus on to ensure that their business is, is functioning properly. Historically inward focused, not concerned with customer demands and quality. They want to make sure that they're just getting that process done. That's for somebody else to worry about is the quality where they want it. If the quality is not where they want it, we will adjust the process at a later date and change that. You know, uh, Today they play a more vital role control three-fourths of the firm's assets and work with other areas. So <clears throat> there's so many aspects to managing a business, or especially managing a large operation. But at the end of the day, the core focus is inputs, outputs, taking something, making something else. And the more efficiently you can do that, the more cost-effectively you can do that, the better off you're going to be. It's not a guarantee of profits, but it definitely lends to higher profitability. So... involves three types of decisions at different stages of production. Production planning, long-term, mid-term, and short-term. Production control, 
like I said, managing those resources and improving production and operations. So my brother-in-law works for Guilford East. Um, anybody know about Guilford? Heard of it? It's a company, and what they make are the fabric car liners. So when you buy a car and it's got some type of fabric in the, the, the ceiling of it, you know, they, that, it's a high chance they made some of that stuff. Um, and so <clears throat> they run what's called a Six Sigma operation. And in that operation, they look at a parts per million. So out of every million yards of fabric they, they produce, they're looking at how many parts of that was an error or had an issue with it. They have these really high-tech high scanners. And so as that panel of fabric is running through this machine, it will scan every square foot of that fabric and look for tears or rips in the seam or discoloration or some type of error. And when that detects error, it will stop the whole process. They will go in and cut out that error piece, reattach it, and then keep the process going again. And the goal is to produce the best quality product with the least amount of error because that error, every time you cut a yard out, that's money that you're not able to capitalize on. Your top tier product is that grade A top shelf primary product. Anything that's torn out, they actually sell in the secondary market, but it's not, you're not getting the premium um, price for that. They're selling it to make stuffed animals and things like that, that, that some, some manufacturer might use it for. Um, same thing's true in production farming. When a farmer makes sweet potatoes, you know, they go through the field and pick up the beautiful grade A choice potatoes that you see in the super, supermarket. If it's too big or too small or misshapen, they leave those in the field and those are called seconds. Uh, and the goal of the farmer is to figure out processes to produce the optimal potato because if they pick their crop too early, the majority, uh, or there's gonna be a lot more potatoes that are not the right size that they want. If they pick them too late, they're gonna be too big. And so they have to plan and figure out what's the exact optimal time to harvest uh, this produce. And so <clears throat> the production process, the first decision involves type of process, way it's created, best fits the goals and customers' demands. So these businesses kind of know through experience what the customer demand is going to be. I'm going to use that Great Harvest company locally as an example. Um, did I mention to you guys last week, Great Harvest? It's a great, great business. I know I mentioned it yesterday, Ms. Hood. But it's a great local business. It's local-owned, and it's a local bakery. They produce you know, breads and other baked goods. Uh, but they know kind of what customer demand is going to be. So they don't need to produce 50 loaves of this particular item if the demand is not going to be there to meet it. So they know on a Tuesday, which is today, they might sell you know, 15 of those particular loaves. So they might make 15 or 16. And the goal is to sell out but not have uh, sold out so quickly that you missed opportunities. So you're constantly having to figure out What's the perfect amount to produce? If we produce too many, we're wasting resources making all this stuff, then that bread's going to go stale. It's not going to be good. But if we produce too few, then we're not going to be able to capitalize on the customer demand. you got people coming out wanting to buy things, and yet I have nothing to sell you, so I missed that opportunity. So there's, you're trying to figure out that, that perfect equilibrium of supply and demand. So mass production manufacturing, many identical goods at once, uh, industrial Revolution, the Model T Fords are examples. Canned goods, over-the-counter goods, household appliances. Um, who likes to shop sale items at big box retailers? Do you like to look for sale items? Does everybody ever go to the clearance aisle? I do, right? Yeah. 
So are you normally disappointed or do you find something interesting in the clearance aisle? I'm most of the time disappointed because the clearance is kind of like not really clearance. It's just deleted and they just, they barely mark it down at all. And I'm like, okay, give me a good deal. Then I'll buy it. You know, sometimes I'll find, I'll say like one to three times a year, I'll find a really good deal on something and I'll snatch it up. But often I'm disappointed. But why is that item going to clearance? The store would prefer to sell it at maximum retail, but the reason why it's going to clearance is because they have deemed that item to be not in demand at the moment. There's no more demand for this item. After Halloween, Halloween is Sunday. Do you know if people are trick-or-treating on Saturday or Sunday, by the way? They are saying it's Sunday trick-or-treating? They are? Okay. I haven't heard yet, but my kids, my little kids might want to go snack, grab some candy. But you better believe on Monday of next week, what's going to happen? Anything that's left over Halloween immediately goes half off, right? That's because the demand tanks after Halloween, right? There's no demand for costumes. I actually like to go buy a few costumes for my kids if they're really cheap, like 75, 90% off, and I'll just put them up for them to play in like mid-year. Do you ever do this? I, I've done that too, yeah. Sometimes they make it to that next year, sometimes they don't, so. Uh, mass customization, goods are produced using mass production up to a point. At that point, products are uh, custom tailored to uh, the needs or desires of individual customers. American Leather, Dallas-based furniture company, so they will produce kind of a, a template for an item, and then from there, that template is molded to meet the customer's demand or whatever their need is. And then customization, Opposite of mass production, goods produced one at a time based on individual customers' specific needs or wants. Um, job shop, so manufacturing firms produce goods in response to customer orders. Like a print shop, if you go order some business cards, you know, they're not mass producing these individualized business cards. They're just producing what you need. Um, and the great thing that technology is allowed to do is to do more and more custom stuff at cheaper and cheaper prices. Like, I've published some books in the past. I actually worked with a middle school, and we published three or four books uh, of poetry, student-written poetry, and it allowed us to get those printed up and published on Amazon. People can still buy them to this day on Amazon.com, and they will custom print those books for us when I order them. So if I order 50 copies, they'll just snap out 50 copies of that specific book and trim it, bind it, and here it comes, you know. So... Very interesting stuff. So that's just a snapshot of the production process. So converting those inputs to outputs. Two basic processes for, to, for converting inputs to outputs. Process manufacturing. The basic input, you have raw materials and natural resources broken down into one or more outputs or products. So a good example, uh, I keep picking on this hood, but we have Starbucks coffee represented in the room. So when you go buy that Starbucks coffee, what they do is they take a bunch of different inputs. They take, you know, if let's just keep it simple. Let's say standard cup of coffee, cream and sugar, right? We're not going to get fancy with all the other stuff that Starbucks does. But for that, Miss um, Hood needs a coffee cup, a coffee lid, a coffee stirrer. The, what do you call the thing that you put around the cup to keep it from burning you or too hot? Uh, the sleeve, thank you. So coffee sleeve, the actual coffee beans, water, the grinder, the coffee brewer, and then you've got the cream itself, the sugar itself. So you need several inputs. And what's that? A stopper. a stopper. What is that to keep it from? Right, yeah. So all these different components come together, and she's responsible for figuring out how to put those things together to create an output. And so Starbucks, their job is to get the inputs to Miss Hood. Her job from there is to figure out how to get them into the output the customer wants. 
So the assembly process is the next one. Basic inputs are combined to create an output or transform into an output. There's a lot of different examples in my, um, my Business 137 class. I have a student that works at Mallow Pickle, and their job is to take these uh, cucumbers they get to process those into the final product of whatever variety they're doing. So production timing, continuous process, long production runs, lasting days, weeks, months without equipment shutdowns. This is for high volume, low variety products, uh, things like nails or glass or paper. Services use this process too, um, local electric company. Um, I have a friend that works at a, a meat processing factory uh, and they have a shutdown, I think, once every 24-hour cycles just for cleaning. But they go through pretty continuous. You know, you go shift one, shift two, shift three, shut down, clean up, and then we keep going, you know. So um, intermittent process or short production runs used to make batches of different products. Machine shutdown to change them to make different products at different times. Low volume, high variety. Most service firms use this, like restaurants, physicians, advertising agencies. So it just depends on the type of business as to the type of production that you that you do. Um, and most small businesses are doing custom type stuff. You know, they're they're doing individual things. That's me. I've got this little security key they've given us now to log in. But anyway, so questions about anything we talked about so far? All right. So location, where do we make it? Facility location affects operation, operating, shipping costs, price of product or service, and ability to compete. And so we live in a global economy now, no, no doubt about it. Uh, we've been evolving to where we're at now for decades. It started really in the 60s and 70s. 80s, it really took off. And it's just gone, you know, even more since then into this idea of kind of outsize, outsourcing production. And the reason is pretty simple. American laborers are very expensive when compared to laborers in other countries. Why would I pay a laborer 40 or $50 an hour as a uh, assembly line worker when I can pay somebody in another country five, 10, $15 an hour for the same work? And oftentimes the work is higher quality because people are really vying to get those jobs because in that country, it's one of the better paying jobs you can get. And so there's actually a documentary on Netflix called American Factory, I think's the name of it. And it shows what happened when a glass manufacturer comes from China to build a glass making facility in the United States. There was a lot of growing pains because the Chinese workers were really good at making glass and doing it for lower wages. And the American workers wanted higher wages, more vacation time, more break time. There's a lot, a lot of, yeah, big cultural difference and the owner of the factory came over and inspected and went through everything and there's a lot of frustration because the american workers were struggling to keep the production and quality up to the scale of what their chinese counterparts were doing if you get a chance watch that american factory it's a really good documentary a little long but worth your watch uh so um but point being going back to this location uh businesses are going to seek out the most cost-effective solution to their problems. And so if I have a very energy-intensive business, like I've run a business, I use a lot of energy, I'm going to want to open up that business in a state where energy consumption is cheap. You know, like a lot of businesses seek out energy uh, close to like hydro dams or places where they get cheaper fuel costs. So 
Uh, these are considerations. You also want to open up a business in a country or, or place where it's a welcoming uh, business environment. You know, so maybe the taxes are lower in this location, or uh, maybe the population is in need of this type of workforce, you know, this type of labor coming in. So these are all things that you want to think about when you're talking about location. So mistakes can be costly. Firm weighs a number of factors in making this decision. Availability of production inputs. Why would I build a factory or production facility in a place where I constantly have to ship in stuff from another country or way across country? That's very capitally intensive. I used to be in the comic book business part-time. I ran a small business on eBay. And one of the big players, this guy lived in California, but he did his business with a company in Florida. And when he would send the books to be graded at this grading facility in Florida, they would have to ship these UPS boxes all the way back to California. And each box held about 30 graded comics. They're big boxes. But the cost to ship one was probably $80 per box. And this guy was doing volume. I'm talking like hundreds of books a week. And so, yeah, I mean, you're talking very expensive. What did this guy eventually do? Closed up his shop in California and moved to Florida in the same town of that facility because he recognized that most of my business is online. I can eliminate all the shipping costs if I relocate. So he relocated to the same town. And now what he does, he just uh, goes, drives to the facility with a truck and picks up his boxes himself and there's no shipping cost involved. So he's dropping off and picking up. He eliminated, you know, probably tens of thousands of dollars a year in shipping costs. And all that goes straight to his bottom line now because he doesn't have to pay that shipping cost. It's genius. It's great because he was having to pay shipping to and from. So marketing factors, manufacturing environment, local incentives. are Like some places will give businesses money or some type of uh, grant to open up a business in their neighborhood. In fact, there were bids going in to Amazon, they were going to give Amazon, they did give Amazon billions of dollars to open up uh, fulfillment centers in their backyard. Did you hear about this? There were places competing for Amazon to get, I think it ended up getting it going to New York because they got it. But I think they were giving them over a billion dollars in tax, tax grants, basically saying, we're going to cut you a break on your taxes if you open up your facility in, this, in our backyard. Why would New York do that? What's the incentive? Jobs, exactly. If we open up a fulfillment center, there's thousands and thousands of people working here. Not only is the fulfillment center going to have employment, think about all the businesses that are going to open up around it. Restaurants, supermarkets, schools, you know what I mean? It creates a whole tax base. And so all these people, all these constituents and stakeholders and shareholders are going to be thrilled to have it being opened up in that backyard. So anytime Walmart throws up a super center, what happens? Even with this little neighborhood market down the road here. Gas yeah, gas stations, restaurants, all these little things pop up around it. So um, international location considerations, you know, what's the challenge if we open it internationally? You know, how is that? How can we manage that? Is it going to work? These are these are things that questions need to be asked. So the next consideration, facility design or layout. <coughs> Excuse me. The goal is to determine the most efficient and effective design. There's three types. A process layout arranges workflow around production process. Workers perform similar tasks grouped together. The product layout, large quantities process, ongoing basis, workstations arranged in line, products move along line. Fixed position, products stay in one place, workers and machinery move around as, as needed. 
And then soon we're manufacturing small self-contained production units, machines and workers in sequential order. So I've seen several different types of these layouts. In fact, I think I've seen them all. Anybody ever watch that show, How It's Made? You ever seen that? So How It's Made is basically, they take you on a tour of a factory and show you how a product is made. Really fascinating stuff. Um, probably the most interesting one I've seen, though, is the fixed position. And when you think of assembly line, you think of something going through this, this automation, right? They're going through a line and being built. Um, with the fixed position, I went to the Caterpillar production plants uh, near Clayton. And then, uh, if you go in, if you're going to go on one, it's really fascinating. These machines are as big as this room, like these big Caterpillar machines, tractors and things like this, uh, and I guess uh, front-end loaders and stuff. And what they do is they build it, but all the workers, they leave that stationary and just build onto it around it, you know. It doesn't move down an assembly line. So I thought that was really fascinating. All right. So resource planning, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this lends to, going back to the bakery example, I need to know how much product I need on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I need to know how my lead time works, meaning that if I order a refill to one of my products, is it going to be here tomorrow, next week, next month? How long, what's that lead time? There's this thing called just-in-time manufacturing, JIT. And the idea is you want to have products come in the back door just as you need them. Because if you, let's say that you use a box of screws to produce something. Well, if I have this box of screws come in the back door and I don't need it yet, what happens? The person has to receive it the back door. Then somebody else has to pick up that box of screws. Then somebody has to go place it on a shelf somewhere. And then when we need it, somebody else has to go get it off the shelf and bring it back over here to the person that needs it, you know. And that doesn't sound like much, right? No big deal, right? But if you do that hundreds and thousands of times a year, it's a lot of waste just in moving inventory around, right? The better plan is it comes to the back door and lands in the person's hand that needs it right then, and then they plug it in and use it right then. That's called just in time. And not only is it good from a time management process or uh, prospect, it's also very good from a money, um, uh, I guess a a money or value process because what happens is if I have to take this and move it around, I'm basically paying interest on that product while it sits on that shelf. So if I'm holding that before until I need it, I more than likely used a line of credit to purchase that as a as a business. And so I'm actually going to pay interest on any merchandise or inputs that are sitting in my back room waiting to be used. So we used to get complaints all the time from the store manager, district manager, regional manager at Walmart that our back room was full of inventory. It needs to be on the sales floor being sold. Well, Walmart will just cram merchandise down your throat over and over again if you're a store, you know, a store manager, assistant manager. And so you've got to do something with it. And you work, work, work trying to fill up the, the, the shelves, but sometimes there's just not room for all this stuff. And so it ends up sitting in the back room. And then the store is literally paying interest on that while it's sitting out there because it's not earning anything from store if it's not being marked to sell. So firms must ensure that resources needed for production are available at strategic moments in the production process. Begins by specifying which raw material, parts, components will be required when to produce finished goods. To determine quantity needed, expected quantity of finished goods must be forecasted. So a bill of material is drawn up that lists the items and number of each required to make the product. Purchasing or procurement is the process of buying production inputs from various sources. Make or buy. 
quantity of time needed, I'm sorry, quantity of times needed is a consideration in this decision. If a part is only used in one of the many products, then buy might be the most cost effective. Buying standard items is usually cheaper and easier. Purchasing from an outside is referred to an outsourcing. Firms must also decide if um, outside firms provide same level of quality. Um, some of you may keep up with this or, or not, but Apple just recently started making its own chips before they were buying Intel chips. And they were buying a heck of a lot of Intel chips, right? They're selling like 100 million plus phones and tablets a year. They're doing a lot of business. And so they're buying to buy 100 million chips. Well, they said, you know, <laughs> it's very costly to buy all these chips from Intel and it's helping them out a lot. So why don't we just make our own chips? Why don't we create our own chip manufacturing facility and do it ourselves? So that's what they did. And so now they're reversing that trend and they can control the process a little better themselves. So inventory management, inventory is supply of goods for sale or used in production. Deciding how, how much to have on hand is a significant challenge to operations managers. Large inventory can meet production demands, quantity discounts, also ties up firms' money. This is what I was talking about with paying interest. Expensive to store and can become obsolete. The goal is to keep costs down while maintaining quantity. Most companies keep perpetual inventory continuously updated in their list levels, orders, sales, and receipts for major items. So what that basically means is, just like I was talking about before, you want to keep the optimal amount of inventory on hand. Not too much, not too little, the optimal amount that you need to be productive. If I'm a bakery, I don't need six months worth of flour. That doesn't make sense. Why would I have six months worth of flour? I need maybe one, two, three, four, five, six weeks maybe, but not six months of flour. That's way too much. Uh, I'm, I'm wasting it, and not only am I wasting it, but I'm committing resources to it that I don't need to. So computerized resource planning, there's a couple different ways. Material requirement planning, MP, MRP. One such system uses master schedule to ensure materials, labors, equipment, need for production are at the right places at the right time. Do we have everything we need to make this process work? Manufacturing Resource Planning 2 or MRP2 expanded the MRP, uses complex system to integrate data from different departments, generates production plan for firm, and then the ERP, the Enterprise Resource Planning, goes a step further and incorporates information about firm suppliers and customers into the flow data. So you better believe there's a lot of logistics that goes into production. They need to know what their customer demand is. They need to know how much they're producing every hour, every day, every week. And is that production going to meet that demand? And if it's not meeting that demand, what's the problem? Where's the holdup? Is it, is it the production process itself? Is it a supply issue? And they want to diagnose that problem quickly in order to get the production back on track. So if your goal for the week is to produce 700 of something, that means you need to produce 100 a day, right? And so and if after two or three days, after three days you should have 300, but if you're only at 200, you've got to make up that other 100 somewhere else, right? So you've got to figure out, okay, I've got four days left to meet that 700 goal, so I need to be, be doing 125 a day from now on to hit that metric. Uh, and so that's how companies, and that's kind of a brief nutshell, how companies think about production. All right. So supply chain management, when we're having to buy supplies from other places, we have to rely on, is our supplier going to be in stock? You know, if I need that flour and I say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to have a couple weeks worth of supply, but then that's time to reorder, we can't get it. Uh-oh, right? This happens a lot at different, I've seen it happen a lot of different food places where they may be out of a particular item and they have to go 
to Sam's Club or somewhere to buy. You know, I've seen food producers leave a food place, go down to a supermarket and buy fruits or vegetables, whatever they need, and come back and, you know, walk in with the receipts and, and do that, you know. So, so supply chain management firms are moving toward a new concept in supplier relationships. Emphasis is developing a strong supply chain. Supply chain, entire sequence of securing inputs, producing goods, and delivering to consumers or customers. Any weak leaks can result in dissatisfied customers. Yeah, you can have this one item that you didn't realize was crucial until you can't get it. You know, it doesn't matter what else you got. Like, this, this thing about your example, going back to Starbucks, it doesn't matter how much supply you got. If you don't have coffee cups, that's a problem, right? Like, imagine you run out of coffee cups. Okay, we well, got coffee. We don't have cups to put them in. Yeah, that's a real problem. Can you imagine Starbucks saying, go get those white styrofoam cups and put it in that? That would be weird if you think about it. Go to Starbucks, you're paying 4 or $5 for a cup of coffee, and you get a styrofoam cup. People would freak. You know, they would really freak out. It would be all over Instagram. Can you believe Starbucks put their coffee in a styrofoam cup? To me, it's not a big deal. But to Starbucks, that would be a disaster, right? I mean, so, yeah, they need to make sure we can get our cups and all everything we need to make that cup of coffee. So, and I've seen at Starbucks recently, they're one of Warsaw open up. We talked about this. They've had some supply issues where they, they were out of stuff. And like, okay, you sell coffee, but you don't have coffee. Let me think about this for a second, you know. So, how about the chicken tenders at Bojangles? Did we talk about that? When they were out, was that a problem? Yeah. Uh, my wife showed me a meme last night that said they were at Bojangles, said, we're out of chicken tenders, we're out of fries. And the person said, well, why are you open? You know, it's like, yeah, that's what they're, they're there to sell. So, so critical element of supply chain management is to develop tight bonds with suppliers. Open communication. If there's a disruption in supply, we need to know about it. Reduce the number of suppliers used and ask for more services offered and better prices in return for ongoing relationship. Um, I've worked in restaurants in the past. The last one I worked at, they used basically one supplier for almost 100% of all their food and everything that was related to their, their business. So suppliers are expected to meet high-quality standards, offer suggestions, and contribute to design or better ways of doing things. So some technologies. Supply chain management relies on strong communication with suppliers. Technology is providing new ways to do this. Sophisticated technologies rely on e-procurements, which is like we go onto a system, we fill out a form, click some buttons, and here we go. We got, our, we got what we need. Electronic data interchange, blockchain technology, computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, robotics, flexible manufacturing system, and computer-integrated manufacturing. Basically, all this lends to um, data flow. It's going to inform us where we're at at each stage of the process and show, be able to glaringly show where our inefficiencies are. Um, and that helps us to, to identify and diagnose those problems more efficiently. All right, questions about anything so far? Quick pulse check. Everybody doing okay? You see robotics did come up in our conversation, so it's all related. It comes up. All right, so production and operation control. Every company needs systems in place to see that production operations are carried out as planned and correct errors when they are not. Coordination of materials, equipment, and human resources to achieve efficiencies are called production control. There's two key, key aspects. Routing, set out workflow, sequence of machines and operations which product progress from start to finish. Good procedures, increase productivity, and cut unnecessary cost. Value stream, mapping. It's a useful tool in routing. Managers map the flow from supplier through factory to customers. Identify where bottlenecks occur and visualize improvements may occur. 
So we, we recently bought, we haven't finished the process yet, we're in the process of buying a house. It's a manufactured home, and there are definite bottlenecks in that process. And like one at one point, I don't know if this is true or not, but they said a potential delay might happen because they're having trouble getting sliding doors. So they've got everything else in place, but that one item jacks up the whole process, you know, and it throws it off days and weeks it can. Or, you know, you're waiting on this one, uh, I guess, worker to come do this one thing, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you want to be able to, if you're the contractor, if you're overseeing that process, uh, you want to be hands-on and figure out every step of that process and make sure it's all kind of flowing uh, smoothly and as quickly as possible because they're on the hook for that money until the deal is done. You know, they're having to pay interest on any money borrowed to fund that deal until it's done. So, so scheduling involves specifying and controlling the time required for each step in the production process. Uh, OM prepares timetables showing the most efficient sequence to ensure materials and laborers are in the right place at the right time. I don't need laborers to show up today when the real need is for it to be them tomorrow. And project managers uh, and people that are doing operations management should be able to know that. Common tools used in complex situations are Gantt charts, critical path method, and PERTs. Just to talk about Gantt charts real quick, has anybody seen those before? So a Gantt chart looks kind of like this. And so like, if you're, let's use the building a casino. So if we're building a casino in Vegas, so foundation crew starts and ends. Let's say this is uh, a, a four month process. Let's say it's gonna take 10 months. And then as the foundation crew is finished doing their stuff, another crew can come in and start at this point. This is the critical point that they start. So they may come start doing some basic framing and stuff. And it may take them this length of time to do that. And then after they got the framing, you know, another uh, crew comes in right here and starts doing like uh, the septic and all that kind of stuff. And then once all this kind of stuff done, then several more crews can start coming in and doing their work. And this gives the timetable for when they're gonna start and when they're gonna finish that part of the process. And it works this way on a lot of different projects. You can have this, some companies have live Gantt charts like Google Docs that update all the time on where they're at at different parts of their prospect. So if this person right here that's running this part of the project says, I can't start on this date, I'm gonna to have to move up to this date right here. Well, what does that do to these guys? It automatically bumps them up to right here and it pops them out to this right here and it pops this completion out to right there. And all that would update in real time if you're running some software to do that. So, all right, any questions on any of this? I don't think we quite wrapped up the chapter. Yeah, there's a couple more things to go over. So we'll go over that. I will show you guys a little something uh, on Thursday, but we will wrap up the chapter on Thursday and go from there. Okay, guys? Appreciate your time. I'll see you then.